Amen. Thanks, Ben. Uh, it's, it's July of 2023. In November of 2024, we're going to do the whole presidential election thing again. And as we're sort of like beginning the ramp up process toward that, uh, there are a number of debates that, that end up swirling in our society and in our culture as we, we head toward those large elections. Debates about things like gun control, discussions about immigration or healthcare, matters of environmental care and climate change, issues of student debt relief, laws regarding human sexuality, gender, and marriage, the ongoing back and forth over the legality of abortion. And you're like, yo, I brought a friend today. Uh, well, how could you do this? Um, what I want to talk about is not each of those issues. I want to talk about what is fundamentally sort of at the bottom of all of those, which is a discussion ultimately about how is it that human life flourishes and then how does that idea of human flourishing play itself out at a societal level as it relates to some of these different topics or different issues? And really what you have uh, particularly strong right now in American society is like a clashing in that public space between what would be sort of the dominant uh, air that we sort of breathe culturally and ideologically, which would be secular humanism that says like what's most important is that a person finds happiness. And so flourishing would be whatever an individual defines as happiness, they are, they are free to pursue that however they want and achieve that for themselves. Over and against what has been sort of the pervasive uh, mindset and reality in America for quite some time, which would be a Judeo-Christian picture of what flourishing looks like. And what you have happening right now is those two things just like smashing into each other in the public space. And it's why we get the tenor of debate that we get around some of these issues. And so while human flourishing is kind of at the bottom of all of those different debates, what's really beneath that is whose vision for flourishing ought to win out. In the life of an individual, certainly, but then as we try to like construct and manage society as a whole. And we're going to answer all those questions in Genesis chapter 9. Um, no, what I want to do this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 9, 1 to 7. And uh, Genesis 9, 1 through 17 is this covenant that God makes with Noah. We're splitting it into two pieces, but at the foundation of it is this question about human flourishing. And so we're going to work through this text and, and pull out the theme, which is like about thriving humanity, look at a specific principle, and then we're going to apply the theme and the principle in light of the cross uh, today. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll pray and jump into it. Genesis 9, starting in verse 1, says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the flesh of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. 
Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. But you, be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. God, for the chance to gather together as a church and uh, join with all creatures in lifting up our praise to you. God, I pray that you would show us this morning something about what it is to be made in your image, to honor and dignify and value that in one another and in humanity. God, would you show us what it is that you desire that we would flourish for our good and for your glory God, would your spirit take the truth of your word, press it into our hearts and conform us into the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna start, we're just gonna walk our way through the text. As I mentioned, this is the beginning of a covenant that God is making with Noah, the Noahic covenant. It's the second covenant that we've seen so far. God makes a covenant of grace with Adam. Now he makes a covenant with Noah. He's going to go on to make a covenant with Abraham. And Adam's and Noah's covenant with God, they differ from Abraham's in one very specific way. And that's that they are covenants that God makes with all of humanity. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, he's going to make that covenant and all of its laws with a specific people. But what God lays out with Adam and what God here lays out with Noah is a covenant for all of humanity. We'll talk more specifically about covenants next week. But God is making promises. He's he's binding himself via agreement and promise to all of humanity through Noah. What God is laying out in Genesis 9, if we're going to live in light of it, we've got to have as expansive a vision as God does for humans and human flourishing. God promises he's never going to flood the earth again despite the sin of humanity. He's continuing to work toward the fulfillment of his Genesis 3.15 promise to put an end to sin and the serpent or Satan via the offspring of Eve. And he's gonna move all that forward in this covenant with Noah. We saw last week that Genesis... 8 and now Genesis 9 is going to continue making some links back to Genesis 1 and 2 and sort of like pulling together all of these themes that we've seen throughout the book of Genesis so far. I'll point some of them out as we work through this. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is the exact same thing that he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. And we also saw back in Genesis 1 and 2 that God gives Adam and Eve dominion or rule over the creatures. And that is present here with Noah. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. So Adam and Eve had rule and reign, dominion over the animals. And now Noah and his family, after the flood, God says, you have authority, dominion. You will rule and reign. But there's a little bit of a shift to it because we're told that the animals are going to fear Noah. Adam and Eve 
We're told that they would rule. Noah is told you have authority and the animals will fear you. What's, what's up with that? Well, Noah is told that they can eat the animals, so maybe there's something to it there. Like they all realize they could be lunch. Adam and Eve were told that they could eat from any tree in the garden, but you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Noah and his family are told, you can eat any of the animals, and then the same pattern pops up. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. So there's this expansive provision, and then there's a limited restriction. That happened in the garden with the trees. You can eat from any tree, but not the tree, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now it happens with Noah and his family as it relates to animals. You can eat any of the animals. I give all of them to you. However, don't eat any meat with the lifeblood in it. There's some debate about whether Adam and Eve were vegetarians or if they could eat meat or not. Suffice it to say, we simply don't know. But this does make it seem in some capacity that there's at least some shift in the state of things that would cause the animals to be like, hey, spare me. Now, Noah and his family are told you can eat any of the animals. However, no meat with its lifeblood in it. The general sort of scholarly historical consensus says that this provision was a way that God would begin to differentiate his, those who are his people and are obedient to him from those who are not and who worship other gods. And so in many ancient religions of the day, animal blood was consumed as part of like religious ritual. And God is saying here, we're not going to do that. If you're going to live in obedience to me, you're not going to eat raw meat. We're going to recognize the significance of life, even animal life. And so though you can eat animals, you're not going to eat it raw and consume the blood. And then you get the final portion of this chunk in verses five and six. And God says, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I'll require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed for God made humans in his image. They're not, not to consume the blood of an animal, and now they're told you're not to spill the blood of a human. They're not to murder. And the restriction is given explicit grounds in the fact that God made humanity in his image. Again, that's a link back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule, there's the dominion, the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Then in Genesis 2, you get the incredible picture of God like kneeling down over Adam and pushing the breath of life into his lungs. In Genesis chapter 9, we're told what ought to have been common sense. That the image of God in humanity is of such importance that to take a human life is expressly forbidden. And then it wraps up with a restatement of verse 1. But you be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply upon it. The bookends are be fruitful, multiply. In the middle is, here's like the very skeleton form of what that fruitfulness and multiplying, what that life is going to look like in this place that I've recreated after the flood. I want us to be very clear about the overall theme of this portion of Genesis chapter 9, not just verses 1 through 7, but all the way down through 17. We'll work with the other half next week. 
This is the groundwork of the covenant that God was making with humanity through Noah. And it is that God desires flourishing life for humanity's good and for God's glory. God willed that exact thing for humanity in the garden. He said, Adam and Eve, here's what it looks like to flourish and to thrive in the place that I have created. He still wills that for Noah and his family after the flood. Here's what it looks like to flourish and thrive in the place that I have created. And he wills that for all of humanity today. The covenant that God is making with Noah is universal. And as he lays the groundwork for that covenant, God paints a picture. Noah, humanity, I want your lives to flourish, to thrive. So be fruitful, multiply, eat, be nourished, but don't snuff out life. Partner with me in creating life. I've made this world for you as a place where you can flourish with me in relationship for your good and for my glory. And throughout scripture, that is never going to change. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, He promises to make Abraham into a great nation that will bless all the nations of the earth. Humanity's good, blessing all the nations of the earth, God's glory. When God spells out all the laws of that covenant for Israel, he is saying, here's how you live in relationship with me so that you flourish and so that my glory is proclaimed in the world. Fast forward to the New Testament. When Jesus comes, he talks about himself as living water, bread of life, Easy yoke, light burden. He says that through him, humanity can have life and have it to the full. Humanity's good. This is life flourishing. And Jesus hasn't abolished all sense of law or command. Instead, he's fulfilled it. And so the follower of Jesus believes that human flourishing happens by living according to God's commands. Not in order to be saved, but because we've been saved. Human flourishing happens by living in obedience to Christ, not in order to get grace, but because we've received grace. Now, before we go forward, I want to name attention. If you have been here over the last few weeks, uh, or you're just familiar with Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, the flood just happened, right? So here is God reiterating the sanctity and the dignity, the value of human life right on the heels of wiping out all of humanity save for eight people. What? How can you say that thing at this moment? It would appear that those are in direct contradiction to one another. I will give you like the cold logic first and then we'll circle around to the heart of it. For some of you, the cold logic will be totally sufficient. For some of you, you'll say, ah, you got to do better than that. The cold logic would be to say that God said right from the beginning that the price of sin would be death. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat the fruit from the tree of the life or of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve ate from that tree. And it was by his grace that they left the garden alive. It was by his grace that Cain lived after murdering Abel. It was by his grace that eight people were saved in the midst of the flood. Because as infinite creator and sovereign king of the universe, God's in his just judgment for transgression against his rule and his reign and his law was death. And that was fair. That's the way it had been since the beginning. 
It does not devalue the importance or the significance of life for God to justly bring about the consequence that's been in place since the beginning. There's sort of like the cold logic. If you're a parent, you discipline your child, whatever that looks like. The fact that you disciplined them does not negate the fact that you tell them that you love them. Like one is not a contradiction of the other. And so you've got a teenage child, you ground them for a week. Later that night as they're sitting at home, bored on their phone, wishing they could be out doing something different, they head off to bed, you say, I love you. They don't say, then you wouldn't have punished me. Those two things aren't in contradiction to one another. The reality of consequence does not undo the reality of God's love. There's like the cold logic. Now, the tender sort of heart of this. Remember God's reaction to sin in Genesis chapter six. The text does not tell us that sin was pervasive and everywhere on the face of the the earth so that every inclination of the thoughts of humanity was only evil all the time and then God in a furious fit of rage decided decided to wipe everybody out. The Bible does not tell us that. If you get into a conversation with somebody who's maybe biblically skeptical or they're sort of, they, they lean antagonistic, atheistic maybe, or just kind of like ambivalent about Christianity, and they say, well, look at, God is like this old angry curmudgeon in the sky. And humanity sins, like does some things that are a little bit less than ideal, and he flies off the handle and he wipes everybody out. And that God is angry and he seems petty and vengeful. That is not what the text says. No, it tells us that the reality on earth was human sin and human brokenness to the point that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time and that God as a result was grieved. Like he was hurt to his core by the reality of sin. And yet he is just and he is holy and he is righteous. And so there's judgment in response to sin, but it's not as if God is up in heaven chuckling in joy over the fact that he's flooding the entirety of the earth. In the same way that you as a parent don't just enjoy some tyrannical sense of power when you discipline your children. It's not like, ha, we grounded him good, you know? No, my my parents used to pretty much openly say when they grounded me as a teenager, now we're stuck with you. So... (laughs) Like, we are punishing ourselves as we punish you. And there's, there is this, like, emotional heart that grieves over the fact that your child would make decisions that would not just harm themselves but would be disobedient to you, and you love them, but there are consequences. Both of those things can exist simultaneously, and they do here. God takes no joy. It doesn't seem as though... God rejoices in what he is doing. The New Testament tells us that he desires that none should perish, but that doesn't mean that he ceases to be just. It changes neither the justness nor the necessity of consequence. He longs for human flourishing. He's grieved by the destruction that sin brings into our lives here in this world. He is just and he will judge, but that doesn't make it a joyful act. And so the biblical picture is this, that human flourishing happens according to God's definition 
of good and evil. He is creator. He is king. And as creator and king, he both knows how humanity best flourishes in the world that he created, and he has the right to command that humanity live accordingly. He has both the knowledge and the authority to do those things. And his knowledge isn't partial because he's sovereign and he's all-knowing. And his authority is not tyrannical because he's loving and holy and he's perfectly good. And so we can trust his knowledge because it's so far above ours. And we can trust his authority because he cannot wield it in harmful ways. And so when we bump into a command in Scripture that we don't like, it's worth reminding ourselves that he knows and that he commands because he cares. Sometimes when we see God's commands or we think about them in the lives of humans, we can question whether or not God actually knows or actually cares. And it's fairly easy within our hearts to lapse into thinking that we know better than him or that we care more than him. The truth is this, that God is more committed to humanity's flourishing than we are. God is more committed to humanity's flourishing than you are. And Jesus is the proof positive of this. Hebrews reminds us that God, the Son, Jesus, has experienced everything that we have. That he's lived perfectly in this world according to God's commands. That he was as fully human as anyone who has ever lived, and yet he broke none of God's loving commands. And he's so committed to the rest of humanity's flourishing that he went to the cross. Now life and life to the full is available because of him, through him, in relationship with him. There's the, th- the theme here in Genesis 9, 1 to 7. God desires for humanity to flourish for their good and for his glory. Then there's a specific principle embedded in the middle of it, verses 5 and 6. Don't murder each other. Why this command or prohibition at this point? Genesis 4, specifically, lays out that the height of sinfulness, or at least the most obvious example of the depth of human brokenness, is the fact that one human would kill another human who is made in the image of God. Cain murders Abel. Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, then boasts and sings this song about his murderous ways. It's on the heels of that that God declares that the wickedness of humanity was widespread on the earth. So, why would you not kill each other? Because human life is is of supreme value. It's in response to that that God says, my image in humanity is too sacred for you to just wipe it out whenever you feel like it. And so doing so comes with a steep penalty. Verse five, I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, or by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. God says that the only commiserate consequence for murdering another human would be to have your life taken in return. And notice that the payment is due not to the offended party or to their family, but to God. In verse 5, three different times, God says, I will require, I will require, 
I will require. This would be to say that in taking a human life, you're not only wronging the person, but you're wronging God whose image humanity bears. And you're like, yo, we brought friends today. Look, there's a long conversation that could happen here about capital punishment. The biblical principle has its genesis here, pun intended. But then that's built on throughout Leviticus and what is commonly referred to as the lex talionis, which is just like the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That builds itself out in Leviticus. And then the principle is even present in Paul's Romans, Romans 13 statement that the government is to, quote, bear the sword as God's representative to punish evil. Now, there is debate among Christians about multiple angles of that specific topic. Some ask the question, given the brokenness of humanity and even its best systems of government and justice, can we trust the process even if we affirm the principle? Others ask a question that's maybe a little bit deeper and they say, does Jesus' command to turn the other cheek impact the societal idea of capital punishment or is that strictly an individual concept and ethic? We're not going to solve that topic here this morning, nor do I want to hijack the sermon with it. Those are questions that we can have good conversation about. We could take the rest of our time together and just for funsies, turn to our neighbor and just discuss how we feel biblically about capital punishment. And however that conversation went, we ought to then be able to turn back forward, face, you know, figuratively the cross and worship alongside one another, even if we have difference of opinions on an issue like capital punishment. What I want to do this morning is focus on the bigger theme and what it means for each of us to live in such a way as to uphold and partner with God in the flourishing of humanity. So, do not murder. That's the sixth commandment. The most straightforward application would be to say, don't walk into someone's house and intentionally end their life. I hope that that is lobbing up a softball of biblical application. But if you're wrestling with that this morning, <laughs> hear me say, don't do that. <laughs> the more difficult questions within our society and in our context today center around issues of like euthanasia or abortion. And the modern defense of those practices boils down typically to a question about the quality of life. Quality of life for the patient in the case of euthanasia quality of life for the mother and the child in the case of abortion. The Christian question is not one of quality, though, at least not primarily one of quality. The Christian question is a question about the sanctity, dignity, value, and worth of human life, followed immediately by a question about the flourishing of life for all of the parties involved. It's in these spaces where the Christian response has to be expansive. We are to be people who not only uphold the value of all of those lives in those situations, but we also ought to be people who work to see that all of the parties cannot just exist. Existence is far too low of a bar for the follower of Jesus. Flourishing is the question. 
The Christian has to move beyond survival or preservation of life into the realm of thriving or flourishing of life. That's what God has in mind. God's picture of humanity made in his image and living in light of his unique affection is not just to exist but to flourish. And life certainly cannot flourish if it's taken, but life does not flourish merely by existing. And so for every ounce of energy that the Big C Church spends advocating on behalf of the preservation of life, the body of Christ, the Big C Church, ought also to be at work to see to it that those lives have the opportunities and systems in place so that they can truly flourish and not just survive. A quick word about killing. The text says not to murder. The word in the Ten Commandments, in the Sixth Commandment, is specific to the act of murder, which has left Christians throughout history trying to figure out what to do about killing. I hope it surprises no one to hear me say that there are sides to that. The Amish, for example, are generally Christian pacifists. So they hold the belief that by their reading of Scripture, violence in any circumstance is completely unjustifiable. Other followers of Jesus ascribe to an idea of just warfare or just killing in certain circumstances or situations. Again, on the theological hierarchy scale, this topic is one that ought to be third level. That would mean that you could hold different views, even passionately, with others in this room, and it need not break our fellowship. The spot of universal agreement is on the positive side of this principle in all of its applications, that life is sacred. It's made in the image of God. It's of a value and a worth that makes taking a life a grievous act in the eyes of God and one that ought to be a grievous act in our eyes. And regardless of where you fall on some of those like tertiary issues, Jesus takes this whole principle in the Sermon on the Mount and he blows it wide open. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Jesus says that our regard for the dignity of and the value of humanity made in the image of God ought to be so big and so pervasive that to even think an angry or hateful or belittling thought against another human being would be to murder them in your heart. What Jesus has done here is that he's reframed the very nature of this sin so that Jesus says that murder is a posture of the heart, not merely an act of the will. What Jesus has done here is that he's taken this principle and he has blown it wide open so that when you're at Thanksgiving dinner and the whole extended family is there, including all of the crazy uncles and the one crazy uncle that you don't see eye to eye with on just about anything and when you're seated around the table there and he launches the conversation into a direction that you showed up thinking, I just hope we don't talk about this. Jesus says, to even think a belittling thought about him is to murder him. You're in traffic on the way home from what was just an absolute disaster of a day at work and someone cuts you off. Jesus says, to even think an angry thought about that person is to have murdered them. 
in your heart. The political figure that you cannot stand not only wins the election, but then takes the country in a direction that you want absolutely no part of. Jesus says, you think one hateful thought about that person, and it is as though you have murdered them in your heart. You're at the grocery store, and you see a person who's wronged you, maybe repeatedly, and your heart swings right past like a desire for forgiveness, right past a desire for even justice, all the way over to sort of coddling thoughts of vengeance and revenge. Jesus says you've murdered that person. You got a coworker that's always rubbed you the wrong way and you both are up for the same promotion. Your coworker gets it. One angry, hateful, belittling thought, Jesus says. You've killed that person. You've murdered them in your heart. As soon as your heart drifts into the realm of hateful, angry, condescending thoughts, you've murdered another person. As soon as you let your heart or mind start to fantasize about that person's downfall or anything other than their flourishing, you've murdered them. But let's, we can be honest, right? I mean, sometimes it's not that my, I have passing angry thoughts or belittling, belittling thoughts about someone. Sometimes it's that I want like 45 minutes to like really play those thoughts all the way out to their extreme. It's like, I want to go on a run, not put my headphones in, and spend 45 or 60 minutes just dreaming about all of the hateful things becoming reality for this other person that I've got problems with. Jesus says, you're murdering that person. And what is the punishment for murder? That my life would be taken. Jesus even affirmed that in his Matthew 5 statement. That's not just to take Genesis 9. Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. And here I am, spending my commute time, not just having the thoughts, but kind of enjoying the hateful thoughts in my own heart. Like there's a, there's a dark corner in my own heart that says, I, I deserve to play these out. I'm not gonna act on them, but I deserve to have them, maybe even to enjoy them a little bit. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus willingly gave his life for every murderous thought that you have ever harbored. Someone died, all right, in response to your murderous thoughts, but it wasn't you, it was Jesus, and he did so willingly. Jesus stands in the gap there. Flourishing life is in him. It's been secured by him. You find it in him. You have it because of him. You have it in relationship with him because the gospel has dealt with and continues to deal with our murderous hearts. What the gospel ought to do by the power of grace upon us and the Holy Spirit within us is chip away at the hatred in our hearts so that we would genuinely desire even our largest enemies 
full flourishing. That we would want nothing else for that person other than for them to thrive in life. The gospel helps us see with stark clarity the reality of our own brokenness. The gospel helps us see the beauty of Christ's sacrifice in our place. We talk about Jesus not just like living according to the law, but he actually fulfills the law. And there's maybe no other place in scripture as clear as this particular example where Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder or else you'll be subject to judgment. I say, and he blows that wide open, don't hate, don't be angry, don't belittle, or else you've murdered and thus you'll be subject to judgment. And what does Jesus do? Willingly walk himself to the cross and fulfill the judgment that you ought to have for all of those hateful thoughts. And he dies in your place. And so for all the blood that your heart has spilled with its angry thoughts, Jesus gives his own in your place. There's the gospel. And the gospel helps us see the value and the dignity of other people without whitewashing or passing over the reality of their sin and brokenness. The gospel helps us learn to long for the flourishing of humanity. The gospel helps us surrender to God's definition of flourishing, both in our lives and in the lives of humanity in general. The gospel helps us give ourselves over to that definition, to submit, to obey The gospel helps us yearn for that definition in the lives of others without becoming arrogant or condescending about our own moral standing. This is all a discipleship issue. I saw a definition of discipleship the other day that said very simply, discipleship is giving the whole of our lives over to Jesus for the whole of our lives. To put that another way, discipleship is learning to give every aspect of our lives over to Jesus for every day of our lives. And so the issue of seeing and respecting and caring for the flourishing of all humanity in accordance with God's vision, that's a discipleship issue. If we're to be devoted followers of Jesus, whose lives are centered on the truth and the beauty and the wonder of the gospel, then we've got to give the whole of our lives, including our wicked thoughts about other people, over to him. We've got to allow grace to empower us to take those thoughts captive like 2 Corinthians 10, 15 says so that we can allow the Holy Spirit to bring those thoughts into obedience to Jesus who's not only paid our debt but also gives us the resources to both live and desire flourishing life. God desires flourishing life for humanity's good and for his glory. That's been the case since he created in the garden. It's the case here after the flood. It is the case for us today. And Jesus takes that notion of flourishing and says, for you to even think thoughts other than flourishing about other people is like murdering them. And in the gospel, we have grace that not not only saves us from the just punishment of that sin, but we've also got power that can transform us out of those thoughts. Last week, we sang a new song, and we're going to sing it again this morning. The, The very first line was, the wages of my sin was death you knew I couldn't pay the debt. Like, the wages of my angry, hateful, belittling, condescending heart and its thoughts, the wages of that is death. That's what I deserve. But Christ took that death in my place. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. We sing Christ and Christ crucified in you. 
we've been raised from death to life. We have life and we have it in the full in Christ. Where there's grace not only for our salvation and the covering over of the just punishment that our sin deserves, but there's also grace to transform us into people who would genuinely long for the flourishing of others. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.